0: Us on this quintessentially wet English winter evening. Just been in Los Angeles for the last few weeks living the dream and I got back last night and I you know landed and looked out the window and just thought there it is, home. Wet, <laughs> dark, but not miserable. We're going to have a great night tonight. Uh, it's a thrill and an honor for me to be hosting this very special intimate evening with John Karabi. My name's Matt Stocks and I do a podcast Called life in the stocks uh this evening's show is going to go out as an episode of that in a couple of weeks so please keep your eyes out for that if you want to relive this evening's anecdotes and, and insights uh but yeah the show has been going for about six years there's been 252 episodes to date previous guests include people who i'm sure will come up in conversation tonight people like tommy lee gene simmons uh, many others, and uh, yeah it's it's been a wild ride. The last few episodes i've done have all been recorded live here at this amazing venue as well. so I want to start off first of all by saying a big thank you to the West Hampstead Arts Club for hosting this evening's event. Um, so the way the show's going to work i 'm going to bring John out in just a moment i 'm going to quiz him on his fascinating life. Has anybody yet had the chance to read his brilliant new book? Dawn down the front here has picked it up. There's copies for sale upstairs. Obviously, John will personalize and sign them all. Uh, It's called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. It actually came out on the same publishing house as my two books. So I've got two books out with Rare Bird, uh, who is the publishing house that put out both my two books and John's book. And uh, yeah, so the publishers hit me up. They said, John's going to be over on tour. Do you want to do a little Q&A podcast event to celebrate his book, my book, and just John's? you know, colorful and amazing and interesting life. So I'm going to chat to John. uh, Then we'll open it up to you guys. So there's a third mic down here. So if you have a question for John, please stick your hand up. And uh, yeah, you can ask away. And then at the end, if John's voice is holding up, we may uh, be treated to a couple of live acoustic songs, but that will be determined as the evening unfolds. Because I think he's six dates down and 20 still to go. So it does all depend. And I think he's already got one of those European winter colds coming on. So but the chat's going to be great. I'm really excited to get into some of these stories. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the stage the man, the myth, the legend. Give it up for John Karabi. Ladies and gentlemen, make some noise. Just like that, he appears from out of nowhere. (laughs) Good to see you, John.
2: You too, buddy. I'm uh, very happy to be here and uh, enjoying your lovely weather, as you said.
0: (laughs) It's almost written in the stars, isn't it? So you've been coming here since what, the early 92, was it 93, your first time over here? Uh, Actually, no,
2: 1991, I came here with the scream uh, they used to do these things at the Astoria Theater, like a Thursday, what it was called.
0: Did anybody go to the Astoria? I never got to go and see a show there, sadly. It's obviously now gone, but all I ever hear about is how legendary and, and amazing this venue was. There was a
2: thing that they used to do. There was a promoter here, and he would bring over new up-and-coming bands, and they would do it on Thursday nights. And I know Badlands was over here, uh, Enough's Enough, It's a bunch of American band. I think it was called American. uh, Anybody? Uh, American rock or something like that. And uh, we came over here the first time and it was we were like, we were all just so blown away, Uh, you know, four kids from America that grew up listening to the Beatles and Zeppelin and Bowie and Humble Pie and all these great english bands so we were just stoked to be here and it was an amazing show um
0: wasn't there some special guests at the gig
2: yes it was uh we were actually in the middle of doing an interview with uh, vanessa warwick uh, from
0: mtv i believe yeah i just saw ricky warwick from the almighty her husband just yes. when I was out in the States, I was saying that to you upstairs. And
2: uh, so we're sitting in the room, and and, and and you have to understand, like, we we had been playing in clubs in America. And I came to the venue, and I looked around this massive, To me it was a massive theater, and I was pissed. I go, and so my manager was with us, and I go, okay, like, why the – You put us in this massive theater. We've never been here before. Nobody knows who we are. He's like, don't worry about it. It'll be fine.
0: Usually, famous last words.
2: Yeah, (laughs) and you know, so we're doing the interview with Vanessa, and everybody's pumped, and they're like, oh, you know, it's good. You know, the theater's full, filling up, and and then there's a knock on the door while we're doing the interview with Vanessa. And somebody came into the room and they go, oh, there's some people here that would love to see you guys. Okay. You know, so the door opens up and the fucking Ramones walk in. And we were like, what? (laughs) We were just freaking out. But the whole trip I was telling Dawn earlier, uh, the whole trip was, it, it made me realize, like, you guys speak English. I speak English, but there's a definite disconnect on certain, certain things. Like cigarettes, right? Oh uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> there's definitely, and I was just telling her the story. So we did our show, and Walt, our drummer, he, he was like, dude, we cannot go back to America. We have to go to a pub and we have to have a Newcastle brown and some whiskey like the Steve Marriott song humble pie you know 30 days in the hole and i go yes so we go to this pub and uh it was actually the marquee club right yeah 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 legendary spot so we go after the show and uh you know we we were still here for a few extra days doing press and photos sessions and so Walt and I go into this thing and we, we belly up to the bar and I got my cigarettes. And we're all just sitting there. And we go two Newcastle Browns, two Jamesons, bring it. And so we start drinking and uh, there was a band playing called Tiger Tales. So we're sitting at the bar and at this point now we are like, five beers and five shots into this thing. And we're a little more than drunk. And this guy comes up and he's got like a palm tree hair and he's wearing like zebra spandex pants. It's got lipstick on. And <clears throat> and I'm sitting on the end, Walt's here. And the guy comes over and he goes, i got a fag. And I look at him and I go, excuse me. <laughs> you know, got a fag
4: and i go okay one more time slow got
2: a fag so walt said what's he saying to you i go i don't know dude i think he's calling us faggots <laughs> and walt just got up and just lead this guy out and then that fast all his friends the the security guys we were just, they were beating the shit out of us. We were trying to hit back, and it was weird, and we ended up on the curb. We walked back. Our clothes were tattered. We had bruises and all this other shit. We went to the, the, the photo session the next day, just mangled. And Welcome
0: to the UK. Yeah, the record label goes, what
2: the fuck happened to you guys? And we're like, oh, I don't know. Some guy was just, we were at a bar, and we were just relaxing, and this guy kept calling us a fag. And he goes, you guys are idiots. He was asking for a cigarette (laughs) and we're like, Oh shit. Okay, great. But then the same day, again, the disconnect the same day. So we're doing the photo session before we leave the hotel. We're all, you know, kind of put a little bit of makeup on and we go to this thing and uh, the girl walks in, she puts her makeup out. We're doing a big photo session with a photographer and they put, all the stuff out <clears throat> and uh she goes okay i'm ready and i was just sitting there smoking a cigarette and i go well okay you can touch me up first and she was like well fuck off and out she goes and i'm like what just happened and the record label's just sitting there laughing their ass off and they go okay well over here in england when you say touch me up you're like Pff. i go uh, thanks for the head never got that email sorry <laughs>
0: On that same trip, didn't you, in a strange, weird, uh, you know, twist of events, get to see? Did you see them play, or just bump into them? But Nirvana, yes. were over here at the exact same time. I
2: don't, I can't remember the name of the club, but again, we were here. Like we did the show, we were here like three or four days before we did the show, and then three, like we were here almost ten days doing press and you know all the interviews, photo sessions, and. And at one point, we went to this little club. It was tiny. And Nirvana did two shows on the same night. And uh, I just remember our bass player, Juan uh, Alderetti, he was watching them, and he just looked at all of us, and he's like, game changer. This, this is going to change everything.
0: And uh this is pre Teen Spirit being released, is it? Or is it like just on that moment?
2: It was that record. The Nevermind Right. They were they were over here to I guess promoting that record and they did and then oddly enough, we had um uh, the guy that did Teen Spirit, Sam Bear, he did their video. He did ours for uh Father, Mother, Son. But it was like you could just feel it. I mean, there was you know you guys really embrace them right out of the gate for that record. And I just remember seeing them and they were great. Um, I know I have a lot of friends that are still a little pissed at Nirvana about, Oh, they ruined everything for the eighties bands. I'm like, no, they were great. They were a great band, great live band. And, uh, you know, it was funny. I'll never forget John Alderete or one Alderete. <clears throat> sitting there looking at all of us going, this is going to change everything this is going to change everything he could see the reaction of the english crowd and their energy and he's like stick a fork in everybody else this is this is going to change everything pretty pretty intense and he,
0: he wasn't wrong
1: nope
0: <laughs> not wrong at all you mentioned the Beatles and in your book, you talk about how, you know, and for so many people, I think of your generation, the kind of baby boomer era, you know, that lightning bolt moment where you know, everybody from Ozzy Osbourne to Alice Cooper, all of these people talk about the Beatles, particularly their Ed Sullivan performance in the States and just how almost overnight before them, everybody wanted to be Elvis and be a singer. And then after that, it was like everybody formed a band and they changed everything. And you talk in the book, which i never really thought about before, about how, your generation grew up with them. And so they started out as these kind of clean cut, you know, young lads. And then as they matured uh, as people and as musicians and as artists, it was a reflection of the culture and the way the times were moving as well. And then obviously by the end of them, it was the end of the hippie movement and yeah. the dream was over onto the next.
2: Yeah, it was. And you have to understand, like, I, I kind of, Obviously, they came to it uh, to America in 1964. You know, so I was maybe four or five years old. So I I didn't quite get them then. I I came into it much later, probably around the time they were calling it a day. Uh, and I remember sitting. There was two two times where I saw. I just I just kind of, in a roundabout way, witnessed the, uh, the power of music. So they did a Ed Sullivan retrospect on the Beatles career, and they played the first time, two times they played on Ed Sullivan. And then there was maybe a video of them uh, doing Hello Goodbye. Then there was another one of them doing Hey Jude and then there was another one with uh uh let it be and it was like that's it it's done but i just saw this thing and i saw the reaction of the girls in the crowd and and uh and it it just it was i don't it was so intense watching that whole progression
0: you know what i mean in such a short space of time as well yes wild uh you know
2: And, and it's funny, like I, I I don't, it baffles me because I I've even got some friends, musicians that will literally sit there and go, yeah, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really a Beatles guy. I was more of a Stones guy. And I go, well, you do realize the Beatles wrote the first stone first song for the Stones. Yeah, but I just, you know, I, whatever. But my thing is, like, you sit there and you look at the cycle of a band now. They do a record and, you know, then they go on tour for two years, you know, and then they do another record. And I just sit there and I think about, you know, from really their discovery in America in 64 to 1966 when they said we're done touring you know they did what five records two movies and like countless world tours and you just look at the production and you're like you know in that span we're still talking about them 50 60 years later you know from really 64 to 69 it was like they owned earth (laughs) you know what I mean but we're still buying the records and we're still talking about them and and he's newer. My son is a huge fan of the Beatles. And it's just, it just keeps, it's this generational thing that just connects with everybody. So personally, I think the Beatles were Satanists and they sold their souls to the devil. But whatever. And the deal paid off. <laughs> it definitely paid off. Paid Paul off. McCartney is not complaining about anything. Did you ever
0: meet Paul? No,
2: I, that would be, I might drop dead if that happened um i met ringo briefly and again had no idea what to even say to him uh i was at Nikki six's house and
0: where all good nights should start yeah <laughs>
2: being i was at Nikki six's house is like someone saying you know <laughs> no no crazy evening started with i'll have the salad um it, there was, like, it was weird. We were in his office, and he used to have this big kind of vestibule entrance way into this. It was like a fucking hotel, but when you walked in, he had an office, and we were sitting in the office, and the doorbell rings, and he goes, hey, hey go get the door. And uh, so I got up, and I opened the door, and I just sat there, and I was like, and it was Ringo Starr and Harry Nielsen.
0: In that Hollywood vampire flame. Alive.
2: Yes, but apparently they knew each other from a rehab stint or some crazy ass thing. And, you know, and I just was like, oh, uh, one of the Beatles is at your door. You know, it's like, how the f- do you respond to that? You know what I mean? It was the weirdest thing. So uh, that was definitely an interesting, <laughs> very interesting afternoon. It was weird.
0: There's some really touching moments in your book where you talk about, um, you know, when you join the crew and they're obviously already massive and they've had time to adapt to fame and being around your idols and you were just kind of thrown in there. And there's, I mean, the moments with Stephen Tyler in the studio, it, just so heartwarming it, to read and just seems like the coolest guy on earth. I mean, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about, because you were in there for quite a while at the same time as Aerosmith, weren't you?
2: We were, yeah, it was 93. Uh, <clears throat> um they were just finishing up uh the final touches of the get a grip record. And um, you know, I, I'm just some kid from a you know slummy little neighborhood in Philadelphia, you know, and I, I I'm sitting there, you know, I joined the band literally like a month into joining the band, we go to this fucking wedding and you know, the guy that picks me up because we flew in on a helicopter. So I was freaking out about that already. Um, And then as we're landing, I see these two golf carts pull up and I tell one of the guys was our tour manager. And I couldn't make out the other guy. And, you know, so I'm sitting there looking at him. I go, man, this guy looks familiar. And our tour manager says, John, this is Brian. And I must have had a weird look on my face because, you know, He's like uh, Brian Johnson from ACDC. and I was like, "Oh shit!" Hey, you know. So well, I hold,
0: hold on. We got to sidetrack real quick. Then where does that night end?
2: Uh, okay, that night ends with Mick Mars. <laughs> we were we went to a Mexican restaurant, and we literally sat at a Mexican restaurant on the island of Catalina, right off of California, and. We sat there from about two o'clock in the afternoon till about 11 o'clock at night drinking Corona's and margaritas. And I think we ate food. I'm not sure. And then we left on the way back to the hotel. Brian heard music and this doorway. So he walked in and we walked up the steps and it was a club and there was a cover band there. and. uh So we're like, ah, you know, all all, all right, one more, you know, we'll go back to the. So we go in, we pull up to these tables, and we order more drinks. And uh, Brian Brian says, "You want to jam?" So Mick goes, "Yeah, let's fucking jam." Okay, cool, whatever. Mick goes, I'll go ask the band if we can use their gear. <laughs> and he did literally did they have any clue who you guys were? <laughs> no. <laughs> we're, so we're in this bar, and it's you know, Tommy and he was with Heather at the time, Tommy and Heather, and me and my wife Valerie, and uh Mick was with Emmy, and then Brian was there with his wife Brenda. And so we so yeah, let's jam. So, Mick walks up to the band and he's standing there in front of them, and they're paying zero mind to him at all. And literally, there's like maybe two people over there, the bar staff, and a table with us. Dan's floor is empty, and Mick's just standing there. And then finally, he goes, All right, they're not going to, so I'll get their attention. And he had sweatpants on and he just pulled them down and he was standing there nude in front of them and they just stopped and they all started laughing. And he goes, can we use your gear? <laughs> and like, sure. And they totally let us use their gear. And then I, I, you know, like three minutes later, I'm standing on stage. I was playing bass, Mick's playing guitar. Tommy's playing drums. And we started playing back in black and Brian started singing. And that's when I realized I go, holy shit. my fucking life is awesome right now because I heard the voice and I just sat there and I looked at him and I, I had to pinch myself. It was just insane. But then, sorry, sidetracked.
0: That's a good story worth putting in. And that's, as you say, within days, is it of being in the band? Yeah,
2: I think I was in the band a month. And again, like everything was just crazy to me. Like, so I go to Tommy before we even left, I got to Tommy's at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning with my wife. We, we live maybe a mile away, came up. And, uh, now in, if, if you're familiar with California, you know, like, so we were in this area called Thousand Oaks, North of LA. And normally When you go to Catalina, you drive down to this area called San Pedro, and then you get a ferry over to the island. It's maybe 16 miles or 20 miles. So I said to Tommy, like, hey, when, you know, when's the car coming for us? And he's like, ah, don't worry about it, dude. And here, here's another whiskey. Just, you know, I got it covered. So we're sitting there, we're talking, and all of a sudden it's like... I look out the window and there's a helicopter landing in his backyard. So I'm already freaking out about the helicopter. I've never been on a helicopter. Boom. Now I meet Brian Johnson. Then the pants and then the thing and the whole weekend was just a blur. We go to rehearsal a couple weeks later. And being, again, this dumbass that wanted to be in a rock band, uh, I remember seeing... They, you know back in america we had the don Kirshner's rock concerts and the midnight special and they, you know and i remember them doing uh for the cal jam in 1974 they had all the bands sabbath black oak arkansas santana there was like deep purple like all these bands played and i just remember seeing coverdale and glenn News. this guy in his white satin outfit with really long hair and sang these notes that were in the stratosphere. And now I'm at rehearsal one day and this guy walks in with his girlfriend and I'm looking at him and this is when Glenn, it's kind of common knowledge. Glenn had some issues with drugs back in the day and he had given up uh, the drugs and he put on a little bit of weight. It wasn't looking the best.
0: I had him on my podcast and he spoke about that time and he said, yeah, he found it really awkward at first to adapt to sobriety yes
2: and so he walked in and i'm looking at him i go uh, and they're like oh hey john this is glenn oh hi glenn and he's like hello how are you and i'm sitting there looking at him and they go i go so i walked over to mick i go glenn, like he goes glenn Hughes, and i was like holy shit like I was freaking out and then we jammed and he sang a couple songs with us and then he left and I was like, kid in a candy store, you know, uh, you know, I don't know how it is here in London, you know, like seeing people like Rod Stewart or Glen Hughes or Stephen Todd, it just didn't happen in Philadelphia. So I was just like,
1: oh my God.
0: I think back then as well, pre-internet, <clears throat> you know, these stars were larger than life, weren't they? They weren't accessible. They weren't just people that you'd see in real life. So when you do, it's like, Oh my God, these people walk among us.
2: Yeah. You know, and, 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 uh, you know, I I i w I'm from the, you know, my favorite era of music, uh, was probably 65 to 80. Like I was into all those seventies bands, grand funk railroad, humble pie, all that stuff. And I'm, I would meet these guys again, not the internet age, So I was of the age where you bought the vinyl and then you sat in your room and you read every word of the liner notes and you were looking where it was produced and who the second engineer was and you were looking at the photos. So there was all of those bands that I grew up listening to. There was a bit of a mystique about them. So when you met him, it was like you were basically, you were meeting God and, uh,
0: you know, so to meet Glenn Hughes and, uh, you know, Didn't Steven Tyler say to Nikki Six one day, like, what's up with your new singer? Like, I keep trying to strike up a conversation with him, and he just looks at me with, like, this open mouth, like...
2: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't... Well, okay. So, again, if you've read the book, uh, there's... I literally was such a huge Aerosmith fan. uh, I got in trouble for something. It was school-related or whatever, and my parents grounded me for a while, and I was like, fuck this, I'm done. And I had some money. I like a side job or whatever. And I took like, you know, 150 bucks. And I'm like, took my guitar, packed the suitcase. I'm going to fucking Boston. I'm joining Aerosmith. I was like 16. And I bought a ticket Amtrak in America. Bought a one way ticket. And I literally wandered around this He's near Just hey. <laughs> Stephen home No, sorry, wrong house. Okay, you know, it's like, do you know where Steven Tyler lives? <clears throat> I was a stupidly huge Aerosmith fan. So now when we do the record, you know, I they don't tell me that he's there. Tommy and Nikki know that I'm just massive Aerosmith fan. And uh, they basically gave me some bullshit story that there was a local band in the other studio and they're going to be here a while. We're going to be here a while. Let's be neighborly. Let's go over and introduce ourselves. Say hello. they will probably be really interested in meeting the guys from Motley crew. And I go, okay, cool. You know, and walk in and unbeknownst to me, they kind of backed off and fell in line behind me. And they let me walk into the studio first. And so I walk in, and right about where he's sitting, there's a guy with his back to me and a guitar. And I open the door, and this other dude, Bruce Fairburn, never met him. Right? I'm like, he turns around and he looks at me. Music stops. And then the guy with his back to me turns around. And he looks at me like he was in the middle of a guitar solo, right? So I interrupted this. So I got the most maniacally evil look from Joe Perry. But my brain, I'm looking at him, and it's not clicking immediately that it's Joe Perry. And my brain's going like, oh, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, holy shit, this guy looks just like Joe Perry. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, fuck, it is Joe Perry. Do you know what I mean? So I'm like freaking out about that. And then over in the corner, God <laughs> starts running at me. And he, I, sh- it was the most surreal thing. Like Steven Tyler, the guy that I ran away to meet, comes running up to me. And he grabbed me and he like kind of kissed me and bit me on the cheek. And then he was like, you know that thing? and he goes, You're the one that's being shot out of the cannon, brother. And I just stood there like I I, I had no idea. Okay. Uh uh. uh, uh, uh. Now Steven is probably if you obviously we've all seen him on TV he's energetic he's beyond musical and he's just one of these guys that just walks into a room and the entire room lights up with energy and and it's just like he he's just always kind of scatting he's like
1: ba 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 ba
2: so every time I would come out to get a coffee or smoke a cigarette or smoke a joint, whatever, I'd run into him. And the nicest guy on the planet. Like, hey man, how's it going? How's it how's uh, the writing gone good? How's the singing? Blah, blah, blah. If you need anything, let me know. And I'm just sitting there like, uh So <laughs> maybe 10 days in. A week, him and Nikki knew each other, and they used to vacation together. The, him, the wives and and he finally went over to Nikki, and he goes, "Dude, what the fuck is wrong with your singer?" And Nikki goes, "What are you, what are you talking about?" He's like, uh, "I keep trying to talk to him." And he just kind of stands there with his eyes are like all bug eyed and his mouth is open and he, goes, it's kind of fucking weird, man. I don't like, he doesn't say a word. And so he said to Nikki, is he, is he high or is he stupid? Nikki goes both. (laughs) Like, it's just like, don't even, I don't know what to tell you. He's a huge, he's a huge fan. So just let it go. Whatever.
0: Nothing prepares you for that, though, does it? And it's so heartwarming and reassuring and inspiring to read the people like yourself who've scaled those heights as well At their core still remain a fan first and foremost and still get excited when those people that shaped and changed their lives you know, come into their orbit.
2: Well, but that's the thing that I tried to explain in the book because Nikki and Tommy used to get pissed at me and uh, they would say things like, dude, you can't be a fanboy now. Like, you know Motley's here and Aerosmith is here and and I'm like no uh you're missing the the last 10 or 11 years of your life like you're here Aerosmith is here but you've worked up to the point where you've known these you've you've kind of you grew with these guys uh you know, I'm just being thrown into the thing right now. And like, this is a guy that I literally bought. T- like, I think I saw, I've seen every Aerosmith tour since Get Your Wings. I'm a fan. Now you're asking me to shut that off and just be a peer. And I can't do it. I'm telling you, I can't do it. Same with the Beatles. If Paul McCartney or, you know, God rest his soul, John Lennon or George Harrison walked in here right now, I've got a million questions. I would want to ask them as a fan like you or like any of them. So that's just something that I can't turn off. Uh, you know, you kind of grew into this. I'm just being thrown right into the fire. You know what I mean? So they, they kind of got it, but, uh, it was. It was still a little for me. It was. A, it was a huge adjustment period. Like I'm Glenn Hughes. Are you kidding? Now it's funny to me. It's still surreal because I now I have a relationship with Glenn. So I'm like, well, hey, talk, dude, talk how about are full you?
0: circle because he's now obviously fronting the band that you were fronting for years, <coughs> Dead Daisies. And it's like,
2: yeah, you, now you are peers. Well, and again, like, I, that's what I tell everybody, you know, they're like, oh, hey, you know, why'd you leave the daisies? And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, personal reasons, you know, but hey, man, if you got to be replaced by somebody, it's like, it's kind of fucking awesome that it's Glenn Hughes, you know, but Glenn, and you know, again, we've known each other since 92 or three. And, uh, you know, we we're it's not like we're mates and we have dinner and shit together, but you know, he's <clears throat> sweet dude and I just wrote to him today. I'm like, I oh, hey, dude, man, sorry we're gonna miss each other on the English tour. Uh tell everybody I said hi and have a great tour. You know, and he, he'll write right back. But uh it's it's still surreal to me that, you know, I remember sitting in my friend's house, my guitar player at the time, you know, two o'clock in the morning, watching uh Uh, A rebroadcast of the the cow jam, smoking weed, passing beers back and forth, and just sitting there like, "Oh my god, dude! When I get older, man, I want to, I want to fucking do that." And for some weird reason, of all the friends that I had, like I, I'm the guy that did it. You know what I mean? And the guy that I thought was like God on that stage in the white satin outfit with the, with the I think it was a Rick Rickenbacker bass singing that middle section in Burn. And it's like, now we're kind of pals. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's still really surreal to me.
0: It's weird. Why do you think you are the guy that did it? Because, you know, there's been several points in your life where opportunities have, you know, just eclipsed you. Uh, and you've obviously persevered and continued and, and gone on to have achieved so much with so many different groups. But as you say, you weren't destined for that. You weren't set up for that in the family life and upbringing situation that you had. What was it, do you think, that brought you to, you know, the the bands that you got to join and the deals you got to sign? Was it just determination alone, talent as well, a mixture of the two, a bit of luck? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, it's still uh,
2: the talent part of it. The verdict is still out. Do you know what I mean? Because you sit there, I think with anybody, you kind of sit there and you wonder, or you look around at other people and you see how successful they are and you go, what am I doing wrong? Like, why, why is that guy, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to be an asshole right now, but it's like, I cannot help but sit and listen to, I'm too sexy for my shirt to say se- and go, what the fuck am I doing wrong? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Why am I not like a household name? Like, uh, Vince Neil or Steven Tyler or David, or like whatever, what, what, what's the disconnect. And I think anybody would do that.
0: Uh, comparisons, a motherfucker though, right?
2: It is, you know, but I sit there and I go, I just remember being a kid, seeing the Beatles, being completely obsessed with Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and all these bands and starting my cover bands and then realizing, like, because I I was the same guy, I'd buy all the Kerangs and buy the Hit Paraders and Creams and I would look at the photos and then I realized if I want to be like that guy, I have to write my own shit. I'm not gonna do it playing the Cars songs or Van Halen. That's their thing. I'm not gonna, be, you know. So I gotta, I gotta do that. So I just, I just started fucking around with writing my own stuff, and it was really caveman shit in the beginning. I've kind of grown into it, but I decided, you know, after a few people went out to California, everybody was like. That's where we got to go. I said, I'm doing this. I don't know. I guess determination. uh, I mean, I've had more than enough record labels go, yeah, I just don't see it, kid. You know, whatever. Uh, You know, so I, I, you know, it's, I got slapped down quite a bit. And I, for some apparent reason, I said, you know what, you, I'm going to show you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Fuck you. I don't believe what you say. I believe what I think. And I'm going to do it. And I just kept going. Um, now, there's a there's a movie, and I thought it was the most brilliant line. I don't know who did the movie. But there's a... And if anybody knows the title, please help me. But um, it's Emilio Estevez in a movie. and. His father, Martin Sheen, actually plays his father in the movie. And it's about a kid that was, I guess he went to college and then he left for a little bit. And he was going to walk some trail in South America. He just wanted to take some time off. And there was a line in that movie that I just really connected with. Because the father, Martin Sheen, is saying to his son,
1: like, you need a plan B. You can't, you know, you can't just be
2: this whimsical, you know, blah, blah, blah. You need to think and you need to have a plan B. And the retort from the son was, I don't want a plan B.
1: And the father says, "Why?" And he goes, "Cause I'll use it." And
2: I never had a plan B, like so. I didn't really have a fucking choice. Like a lot of people say to me, "Oh, dude, what would you be doing if you weren't doing music?" I'd got—I don't know—I'd be in jail or sweeping streets somewhere. I did not have a plan B. I left school in ninth grade fuck this. I don't need it. I don't need a diploma to play an A chord. So I left. I had zero plan B. So I, when I went to California, I went on a whim and I'm like, I'm going to do this. So maybe determination, you know, I I, I don't know, but I was just like, I want to do this. And that was all I saw, you know, inspiring stuff. I don't know if it's inspiring or not, but it was pretty fucking scary at the time. <laughs> it was... Say what now? Don't
0: it's... be shy. Yeah. He's bigging you up, John. Oh, okay. He's, he's Thank a- you. He's affirming your message. Um, it's crazy that you have ended up with such, you know, a successful and, and happy life because your beginnings were very much not that. And if we can like, you know, sidetrack and perhaps lower the tone for a moment there's any true crime fans in this room tonight, there is the most insane chapter in John's book called The Shoemaker. I wonder if you could just set the scene on all of that madness.
2: The neighborhood that I grew up in, um, I mean, even then, I'm talking the 70s, so it was a very uh, Irish, Catholic, very much like uh goodwill hunting like that 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 irish boston cap-
0: southie kind of vibe yeah the
2: southie vibe and so these were the kids that i hung out with and uh you know and then the, you know it was just like this really kind of weird southie neighborhood and uh so i hung out with maybe five or six guys and we hung out on this little street and behind us there was a shoemaker and he had several kids. A couple of them used to pop in and out of our little clique and we would hang out, but they were all kind of off, not, they were just weird. And we thought they were weird. The father was, uh, you know, obviously the shoemaker guy. And you know, if, if you were walking past his, his shop, and just stopped to talk to a friend. He would come running out of the store and he'd curse Get the fuck out You know, and he would have this little, remember those portable, like, Instamatic cameras. And he would, like, take photos and spin and go, fuck you, get up fuck, you know, dog. And just yell these, like, almost Tourette's kind of bullshit. And we were like, what's the fucking problem with this guy? So we just made it a sport. To torture this guy, and it was like lighting up bags
0: of shit and all. Oh
2: yeah, dude! It was like now I don't know if this is an English thing or an American thing, but we would literally get a brown bag, like a you know a, a sack that you would get at a groceries at a store. We would get a brown bag and we would go around collecting dog shit, and we would put it in the bag. And then we would wrap the top of the bag and then light it or not light it. We would douse it with lighter fluid. So you put the lighter fluid on and then, you know, this was a two or three man operation now. So we had the dog shit in the bag, soaked the brown paper bag with lighter fluid and while you were doing that, the other guy, your other buddy. I'm an accomplice now. Let's go. Yes. Okay. He's got the match. Okay. So we then we take it. We put it on the doorstep. You light it. He rings the doorbell. And then we run. It's a classic. Flaming bag of dog shit on the top step. And then the person comes out and they go. uh, uh, and then they start stomping on this thing. And then they just get dog shit all over their shoes. He's a shoemaker. So it drove this guy. Drove this guy crazy, you know, sugar in the in the gas tank, like, you know, fruit. We would throw it at his windows and, you know, and we would just flip him off and chuck, like stand on a billboard across the street and drop her pants and just, you know, (laughs) just torture
0: the guy. But don't worry, because he deserved all of this.
2: But we did it because, as kids, we didn't know why, but he was weird. And he was just off. And all of his kids were off. So, one day, um, on my street, which, it it, it was weird, it was like these, uh, they call them brownstones three-story homes, row homes, all connected. And he'd walk in the front door. There was a street. Walk in the front door. You could walk right through the house, out the kitchen, through the backyard, and then there was a gate, and then there was another street. He lived on that street. So my friends, uh, the Dugans, they come in one day, and they say, uh, yeah, man, Joey Callinger, Stole my mother's food stamps. And uh, and this uh, Dugan brother was a little older. So he came to me and he goes, Joey's over there. I, I can't hit him because he was over 18. Joey was only like 15. But I was around the same age. So I go, I got gotcha. you. And Joey's the shoemaker's son, right? Yeah. Yes. So I go over and I'm asking about the food stamps and I just punch and, you know, so we start fighting like dumb asses and uh, we start kicking the shit out of each other. And then he kind of tapped out. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll go. So as he's walking away, I say, don't ever come on our street again or I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> so maybe a month later, I'm in my room. I'm listening to Zeppelin Four, rubber soul by the Beatles or something. And I hear a knock on the door. And then I hear my mother go,
1: what? Johnny, get your ass down here right now.
2: I come downstairs and there's all these cops there. And they go, are you John Carabi? I go, yeah. Can you come with us? Okay. So get in the car and my mom got in the car got in the police car and we go up to the police station and uh they start asking me about this fight that I had like a month before. And I'm like, Yeah, 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 we yeah, we had a fight. And yeah, well, did you say you would kill him? And I go, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I did. I don't know. And then he takes this fucking photo and he slides it across the table. And I'm just sitting there looking at it. And I go, that's a dead Joey Callinger. Do you know what I mean? And I'm freaking out. I got like bruised and, well, all the neighbors said that you, you know, you threatened to kill him and you got into a fight and you guys were pretty, you know, and, and I'm going, yeah okay hold on <laughs> time out <laughs> a little reset yeah we got into a fight and yeah maybe i said i'd kill him but i didn't actually kill him like you know and it, i was literally there getting like you know two guys would come in and they would talk to me and show me photos and i mean i'm like fucking 15 years old i'm looking at a dead friend kind of
0: and You're a, a murder a, suspect at this stage.
2: Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm freaking out. Like, I'm, I'm just sitting there, uh, uh, you know, then they would leave and they you know, one guy would bring me a Coke and then, you know, they'd leave and then two other guys would come in. I was literally there for like 11 hours, 13 hours, some shit. And then my mom finally goes, do I need a lawyer? Not yet, but don't leave, <laughs> like, don't leave town kind of a deal. And uh as it turned out, um, you know, it was it was a while. They they kept asking questions and coming back and asking me new shit and uh you know, so for like fuck, it was like six months, seven months of just in doubt, neighbors looking at me all weird, like, Oh, there's that karabi kid, he killed that kid. Now, you know, we and uh you know, so it was like eight months of just uh, You know, the leper, here comes the leper, everybody move. Uh, And then it it was weird. All of a sudden, all these cops and there's all this news and these news cameras uh, at this shoemaker around the corner. As it turned out, the father, who we all thought was off, was actually traveling around, uh... Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, and he was casing homes and he would watch a house and he would wait for husband to leave. And then he would go in and he would rob the house with his other son, Jimmy. They would go in, tie the woman up and Then he would have his son have sex with the woman and then, you know, all this stuff. So he had killed this woman or the last woman that he killed, killed her. And they found his shirt like a block from the crime scene. It was covered in the woman's blood and inside the collar, there was a tag and it was this so the, so my street was here, the shoemaker was here. And then the next block up, there was a dry cleaners and this dry cleaner made a habit of any pants or any shirts you did. He would always put a tag on the inside with the first three letters of your last name. And it had K A. Oh, and somehow the police found the shirt and tracked it back to that cleaners. And they're like, whose shirt is this? Oh, that's uh, the calendar guy right there. And they sent him to the thing and they went up finding out that the guy had killed. And well, he didn't. This is the weird thing. He didn't rape any of the women, but he had his son rape them at knife point and then they would kill. And there was like four or five people and. And then as soon as that happened, then they found out when they posted his picture in the paper, the serial killer from Kensington. Well, earlier, there was a mall being built in downtown Philadelphia. This is how off the guy was. Uh, So at the mall where they broke the ground, where they put the foundation way into the ground, they found the kid that they thought I killed in the rubble of this mall. And uh, so when they found the body, but it was funny, like they didn't put two and two together. When they started running his picture in the paper as a serial killer, all the construction workers went, I remember that guy. He used to come down here at like six or seven o'clock in the morning. He'd be sitting there with coffee. And, you know, they got to go down like two or three stories for the foundation. And he would just sit there and go, man, that's a pretty big hole. You, you, You guys ever find any bodies? And they never put two and two together. But as soon as they did the thing, then they contacted the police and said, wait, that's the same guy that used to come here where we found the body and then they said it was his son so he took an insurance policy out on his own son killed him put him under the thing and tried to blame it on me
0: for being in a fight with him so and that's like chapter three in john's book <laughs> so just to give you an idea of how what a fucking story right i mean don't know whether it's clapworthy, but Pretty fucking I was, no, wild. Dude, dude, I'll
2: tell you what, I was sweating. Uh, there was a few minutes there where I was like, holy shit, I'm going to go to jail for something. Okay, I could have done, but I didn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, I was freaking out. My mom was like just white. I remember her sitting there looking at me, you know, and then they would leave the room and she'd go, did you do this? And I'm like, no, I swear, I, I you know, I didn't do it you know but it was it was uh, it, again and i i see all these crime shows now i'm the king of watching I was gonna them say, as well. that's
0: like the most popular genre on netflix now
2: isn't yeah, it yeah being being at the just one of those things where you're you're at the wrong place at the wrong time and you maybe look like the guy or whatever but it was one of those things where i definitely fought the kid i definitely said well fuck you, you don't come on our street anymore you piece of shit off can kill you. And he left and when they found the body, they started looking around the neighborhood, knocking on doors with his photo. And you know, again, just the truth all the neighbors are like, "Well, uh Yeah, the last time I saw him, he got into a fight with the Karabi kid up the street and you know, he did say he would kill him. And uh and and my, a lot of my neighbors were like, <laughs> he's capable, you know, because I was an asshole when I was little. I was like a troublemaker, kind of, you know what I mean? Not intentionally. I would just always do dumb shit that I, you know what I mean?
0: And always get caught.
2: They, yeah, and I would always get caught, and they would. But so my neighbors always just were like, oh, he's a little fucking hoodlum. So, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. So I was like, you know. Prime suspect for six months, seven months, eight months it was weird. Not comfortable.
0: Assumedly, the shoemaker rotted in a jail cell. Then, and-
2: actually, he did eventually die in jail. But it was weird, man. Like I, I wasn't even aware of some of the shit that the guy had done. Uh, Paul, who actually co-wrote the book with me, he really dove deep and he found out some other shit like. Uh, And I'm, I'm, I'm literally talking about a guy that uh, was obviously an off human being, but he had a couple of daughters and he had three or four sons, three sons. But when his daughter, who was the oldest, um, and you may find this hard to believe, but it's, Absolutely true. When his daughter got her first period, he was like, uh, she's not pure. So he tied her to like a refrigerator and then he burned her thighs and stuff with an iron to get the demons out of her. And then he would take his other son uh, and like, they, it, it Paul made me aware of it. He was like every day at like eleven he'd wake his son up and hit him with a hammer, you know, to get the, and I was like, holy shit. And then, you know, there was a, apparently he, uh, a little Spanish boy, like a young kid. Uh, he sexually abused him and then cut the boy's testicles off and put them in his mouth. And, it killed another prisoner. Like slit his throat with a tuna can. Uh, you know what I mean. So the guy was just off, and you know. And you look at it, and you're like, you know, you're 11, 12, 13 years old, and this guy's just like yelling and cursing and like again, almost like Tourette syndrome. And you're like, oh, there's something weird with this guy. <laughs> Let's torture him. You know what I mean? So you don't think about it, and it's like, holy shit, man. Like, this guy literally literally could have climbed the fence in my backyard, walked through my kitchen door, and just mutilated my entire family because I put a shit bag on his fucking <laughs> on his doorstep. And, uh, you know, so you think about it. I, w- I was, again, nervous about the law being up my ass for eight months. But it, as I got older in life, I'm like, holy shit, this guy could have like, just wiped out my whole family because I was torturing him. You know, it, was,
0: it was a weird thing. It was weird. You've had a very wild life, John. So um, to lower the tone, <laughs> to lower the tone after that heaviness. Can we
2: talk about the time I met Mother Teresa?
0: <laughs> I want you to share the story with how Sandra Bullock is the one that got away. Oh, my God. This is magic. You're already right telling this one? Yeah. Well, they yeah. bring bring back too many painful memories. No, I, uh, I,
2: I was at Tommy's house, and uh, Tommy gets a phone call, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, dude, where? Where? Oh, yeah, bro, that's right down the street from us." Okay, he's like, "Come on, dude, let's go down." Sylvester Stallone's doing a new movie, so I was like. Okay. So we got in Tommy's car and literally him and Nikki lived in a gated community, so you came down the hill, out through the gate, uh maybe another fifty feet where was a traffic signal and then crossed just straight crossed and then we could see all the lights and the cameras and so we go to this uh we go to the trailer knock on the door and Sylvester's in there. So we go in and, and, uh, I met him the second time. And then I reminded him. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. I
2: reminded him actually the same neighborhood where the shoemaker was, uh, is where he filmed rock. Right. So if anybody saw the first Rocky, like all that, those weird streets and the bridges and all that shit, that was my neighborhood. That's exactly what it looked like. There was no, oh, hey, we need to make these houses look like shit because that's what the neighborhood looked like. So that they filmed that in my neighborhood. And uh and I I told Sylvester, I said, Man, I was like I said, dude, do you remember you know that scene where you're walking under the bridge and like your brother Frank, he had that band on the corner next to the flame and the trash can. He's like, Yeah. I go, when you were filming that, do you remember? It was like this 15, fifteen, sixteen-year-old kid was sitting there and walked over to you and said, uh, "Hey, man, you filming a movie?" And you were like, "Yeah, whatever." Uh, so he tells me this whole thing, and I said, "I." He goes, "Yeah, yeah, actually, I do kind of remember that." I go, "That was me. I was there. Like I was sitting there. We sat and t- I talked with him for like." An hour and a half, two hours. Oh, the movie's about a guy named Rocky, you know. And I'm like, oh, Rocky, you know, Marciano, Rocky, you know, no, no, Rocky, just Rocky, whatever. So, anyway, Tommy and I are now, you know, a gazillion years later, we're sitting in his trailer and, and, uh, Tommy says, who's in the movie? And Sylvester says, Oh, uh, we got this guy named Dennis Leary, the comedian, and this girl named Sandy. And, uh... Movie's Demolition Man, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, you have to remember, uh, Dennis had just done, uh, a comedy record called No Cure for Cancer. And he does this thing where he's like, he does this whole skit, like, uh... Why is it that all the good ones die? You know, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, you know, and he's going through this list of like these classic artists that died from drug overdoses. He goes, you know, why couldn't it be somebody like, you know, fucking Bon Jovi or, uh, you know, fucking Motley Crue? And he, so he mentioned Motley Crue on the record. He goes, why couldn't it be somebody like Motley Crue? He goes, those guys are fucking idiots. He goes, you could stick them in a room with 10 tons of crack, and they'll come out a half hour later going, let's do a live record. You know, so he, he's do, he does this whole routine. So Tommy says, where's Dennis's trailer? And Sylvester goes, oh, it's right over there. The Tommy and I walk up and we knock on the door and the door opens and it's Dennis. And he just looked at me and Tommy and we were just standing there like with sunglasses on. We're just standing there like this. He goes, God, I hope you guys have a sense of humor. So we started laughing. Boom, 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 boom. And I go into the trailer with Tommy and I sit down and at that point it was Tommy, Dennis, and me. And then all of a sudden this girl comes in and she's wearing this like cop outfit and uh cute as cute as a button. And uh John, Tommy, this is Sandy, Sandy, this is Tommy Lee, John, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're sitting there and there was a couch and and uh <laughs> Now Tommy and Dennis, for some apparent reason, had this issue where they had to constantly go to the bathroom together. They were reading their lines, right? <laughs> yes, it, yeah they were they were practicing their lines, and uh, you know, so so he left me with this girl, and so she starts asking me like, oh, you know, so what do you do? And I'm like, oh, singer. Um, oh, oh, cool. You know, so she's asking me, like, so what's your name? And I go, John. Um, you you are? I'm Sandra. Okay, cool. She goes, uh, so uh, do you live around here? And, yeah. And it was just like this kind of Philly, East Coast sense of humor. So she asked me, like, six questions, like, boom, 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 boom. And then my old neighborhood, we used to say, "The fucks with the questions? What are you a fucking cop? What are you writing a book? Like, you know,
0: so she's in a cop outfit. Yeah. No,
2: so I I hit her with this. I start asking her, I go, What's with the fucking questions over there? You, uh, what are you writing a fucking book? What are you a cop? And she immediately did the accent and came right back with some retort. And I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. She's fucking funny too. So we start doing our thing and we're flirting and, sitting on the couch, holding hands, and anyway. uh, A gentleman never tells all. So door, somebody knocks at the door, and they're like, Sandra, you got to film this scene. So she goes, oh, come on, come with me. So I walk up, and the scene in Demolition Man where he kind of crashes through this building, and the car lands, and it turns into this foam, and his fist comes through, and he's like, yeah, right turn the car into a cannoli you know whatever and they they kept having to do this scene over and over and over again and i stayed there till about four o'clock and we were like holding hands it was getting cold so i was wrapped you know wrapped a coat around her we were like hugging and i was like so smitten with this girl so she's like okay we're done for the night like wait here i'll be right back Okay, Uh, she goes. I'm just gonna go get changed. So I was like, okay, cool. You know, there's a all all night kind of deli down the street if you're hungry or want some coffee or something. I'll take you. Okay, great. You know. So we're sitting there, and uh, I'm like ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes. Now I'm starting to like okay. You know what I mean. So I walk back to her trailer. And I knock on the door, this woman comes out, and I said, hi, is Sandy here? She goes, oh, no, 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 she just, she just left. She's going to meet somebody at the front gate, which is kind of where I was standing. So I'm like, oh, fuck, let me get back there. So I start walking back, and I see our guitar tech, Bobby, uh, Bobby O. He's been mixed guitar tech for a gazillion years. He was with us. And he comes walking. He's walking back towards the trailers. I'm walking back to where I just was. And he goes, hey, Crab. Uh, yeah, that little actress chick, she was asking if uh, where you were. And I said, well, I was waiting here. And then I went up to her trailer. Is she still here? He goes, I don't know. She asked for your number. <clears throat> and I said, oh, okay, cool. Did you give it to her? He goes, Nah, dude, I didn't want to give it to her without asking for your permission first. And I go, fuck. Are you shitting me? You did not give her my number. And he goes, nope. I go, god damn it. All right, fine. Whatever. Hopefully, you know. Well, then, I think she did Demolition Man. Her next movie was like Speed. And she blew up. You know what I mean? To the point where... And I was like, I can't, well, I've kind of figured out now when you, when you see these sites on like Instagram and Facebook and all that shit, and they have the blue dot, it doesn't mean a goddamn thing. It means it's an official site for that person that doesn't even check their email. Somebody else gets paid to do that shit for them. And I was like. Hey, Sandy, remember that time that we were on the couch and we were like, yeah, fucking, yeah I'd really love to get a hold of you again if you could give me a call and give me my number and literally here's my email, here's where I live, uh, you know. I'll pay for everything,
0: let's go, please. I'll I'll,
2: I'll I'll take you for that coffee that I told you about, you know, and we'll, like to finish where we started and uh, it's just like crickets, that's my, so I just sit there and I go, now it's like I cannot watch a Sandra Bullock movie and without taking a piece of rope and tying it to my ankle and then throwing it over my fucking shoulder and just sitting there going, "The one that got
0: away, the one that got away. Yes. John Karabi, ladies and gentlemen, I think at that point we'll take a five to maybe 10 minute break, come back. And then if you want to ask John some questions, We'll take your questions, uh, and then we'll yeah maybe wrap with some music. See how we go. But let's do a five-minute interval there, and we'll see you back here in, in five minutes for some audience Q and A. Thank you, John. Uh,
2: no worries, buddy. Thank you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like
1: Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds.
0: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right?
3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host.
1: All
0: right, ladies and gents, we'll start part two when everybody is down. I hope you got some good questions. As you've already heard, John's an open book, so don't be shy. I was just on the Kiss cruise. Yes. And... I picked up your book just before going on the cruise and I'm reading through it on the boat and you're talking about Eric Singer and you know Bruce and all these people that are there on the boat, Tracy Guns. Yes. And uh, I wasn't aware until reading it that Gene Simmons very nearly signed your first like proper band.
2: Yes. Um, Gene has been a quiet supporter of mine since... Uh nineteen eighty seven and he wanted to sign the very first band that I was in called Angora. Um he hated the name of the band. He goes, Angora? Who fucking names your band after a sweater? Come on, please. Uh, I'm gonna sign your band, but we're gonna change the band's name to Eight Ball and I'm thinking like the drug connotation. I know where your head went.
0: Right. You're thinking this is weird because James notoriously can't see that. you're
2: notoriously not into drugs. Why would you name the band 8-Ball? Greatest explanation ever. He goes, 8-Ball, how many guys are in your band? I go, four. He goes, two balls each, 8-Ball. I go, oh, okay, all right, awesome. But it was funny, Gene, uh, obviously in his very stoic, uh, you know, Mr. Stocks, how are you, Gene Simmons, you know, and it's, so he, he would, uh, he called me one day at my house and he was, uh, very honest and he said, I, I like your band but he said, I love you. He said, You write all the music. And he said something it didn't, again, and I still have difficulty with, but he goes, You are a rock star. Your manager and your band? No. You are a rock star. Okay, Gene, whatever. So then when I got the Scream gig after that band kind of imploded, uh, Gene liked the the fact that I could write, but I, I was also a bit of a... I would argue with him, and he liked that. And I remember he when he was going to sign our band, he took us out to lunch. He said, I've come down to this restaurant and I wanna I wanna buy you guys lunch and I wanna discuss this contract. So we're discussing the contract. And then at the very end, it was the he picked the restaurant and I remember he said, I'll buy you guys lunch and we'll talk about the thing. So at the end he starts discussing, yeah, you know, the first record we'll do two hundred thousand dollars and I'm gonna, you know, I'll do, you know, I'll spend a half a million dollars on the radio. And then uh, we'll spend a half a million dollars on the video and blah, 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 and all this other shit. <clears throat> and then at the very end, uh, the check comes and he takes the check and he looks at the check and then he goes like this and he slides it across the table to my manager and she goes to pick up the check and I put my hand on it and I went. And I slid it back. And he goes, you do realize I'm offering you a record deal, right? I go, yeah, but where I come from, you invite someone to dinner, you pay. And he goes, you know. So at that point. Begrudgingly paid. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. He was, he, but he, he smiled. Boom. Now, afterwards, I get the scream. I get the scream gig. And I ran into him somewhere. And he, again, he he always calls me Mr. Karabi. Mr. Karabi? Gene Simmons. I go, duh. (laughs) You know, uh, he goes, remember when I told you? Remember what I told you? You were going to be a rock star. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. But then when I got the Motley gig, he walked over to me. I saw him somewhere, and he goes, Mr. Karabi? And I said yes. He goes, Gene Simmons is never wrong. (laughs) So I got the gig, and he was like, boom. So now when I see him, I saw him uh, the last couple times with uh, with the Dead Daisies. We did some tours with them, and uh, he would come in, and again, it's just so fucking surreal because he comes in, he's like nine feet tall, he's got the bat outfit on, his thing, and and he's sitting there telling me like, you know jew jokes you know what i mean and i'm just sitting there looking at him and he tells me like some crazy jewish joke about jesus christ and and i i'm sitting there uh, okay cool and he goes mr karabi so i'm laughing and he goes mr karabi gene simmons never wrong and then he starts walking out of the room and he comes back and he goes two things angora what were you thinking and then he goes, I had a song called Hey Operator. And he goes, best song you've ever, you, you ever wrote. And then he left. And then I was talking to Eric. Eric's like, Eric goes, uh, what's this Hey Operator song Gene, Gene's talking about? I go, yeah, next time, you, next time Gene brings up Hey Operator, tell him I liked it a lot better when it was called Domino. And he, and so Eric said it to him and Gene just kinda chuckled because the beginning of Hey Operator is almost the same as it's like mm-hmm, 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 you know. So I, I give him shit too. I go, I like that song that he had Domino I mean hey up I mean domino. <laughs> He's like, Fuck you. Whatever. You'll but appreciate this. I John. love Gene. He's such oh. a great dude. Funnier than shit, he'll take a piss out of himself as well. You know this. And uh you know, he, I'm sorry if I'm rambling. Not at all.
0: But uh, I'll talk about Gene all day.
2: Yeah, he, Just don't tell he, Gene. He, yeah, exactly, because he'll charge us every time we mention his name. Anyway, but he he literally would say things. Uh, he he was telling me. Uh, he took change out of his pocket, and he takes all these coins, and he spreads them out, and he said, "Mr. Karavi." you see that penny, dime, and that nickel? I go, yeah. He goes, I'm upset with those pennies, dimes, and nickels. I go, why? He goes, because they're not quarters. Right? And then he took his son, Nicholas, if you obviously saw the show. He said he was walking around his huge estate, you know, in uh, Bel Air. And he's got his arm around his son. And he's saying to his son, Nicholas, someday all of this will still be mine. <laughs> and I go, I got you gotta love that guy because he's just he doesn't give a shit. He says what he thinks and uh you know and and again, you know, he he uh he's just always believed in me. And I'm you know can't can't thank him enough for that you know so it
0: was cool he's the real deal he once said to me he's like of course i'm an asshole matt i called my second solo album asshole
2: yeah (laughs) and he'll be the first to tell you like again he just takes a piss out of himself uh you know he he has fun with it even the guys in my solo band um jeremy osbrock and and uh phil shouse and ryan cook they traveled with him and they're like, dude, he is so fucking nice and down to earth, you know? And, uh, they were kidding with me too. They're like, yeah, I go, so dude, how's it been? How's the tour been? You know, good. They're like, dude, he's such a nice guy, man. He like really takes care of us and all this other stuff. You pay us more, but whatever he's, (laughs) you you know what I mean? And uh, you know, but he's just, he's, Honestly, love him, hate him, whatever. Uh, He's straight with you all the time. Honest as the day is long. He doesn't give a shit if it hurts your feelings. If you ask him what do you think about something, he's going to tell you the truth. And I love that about him. I know exactly where. And I learned this very early on. Gene called me and he said, call me anytime you want. Here's my number. I said, oh, okay, cool. And I remember calling him about something.
1: And he answered the phone. He's like, hello. I go, Jane, uh, it's John
2: Karabi. He goes, Mr. Karabi. And I said, how are you? Uh, how's Shannon? How's the kids? And he goes, he just cut me off. And he goes, Mr. Karabi, time is money. You're wasting my time. And I go, Got it, you know, but he just, what do you want? And I told him what was on my mind, and he sat and he talked with me, and he gave me direct answers about everything. And then that was that. Um, So I I just like people that are direct. I don't like people that kind of kiss your ass and tell you one thing. And then when you walk out of the room, you know, they've got a completely different opinion. And that's what I love about Gene. Like, if he doesn't like something, he's going to be like, no, fuck you. I don't like that, period. And I just like direct people.
0: To Gene Simmons and direct people. Cheers. I just interviewed Kiss on the cruise, the full band, and I thought in solidarity with Eric, I'd wear an Alice Cooper T-shirt because a lot of the questions were pre-sent in by the the cruisers and there was no, no questions directed towards eric so i thought i'll rock up in an alice cooper t-shirt show him some allegiance throw in a couple of questions gene spent the entire hour berating me for having the audacity to wear an alice cooper t-shirt to a kiss event he was like would i go to an alice event in a kiss shirt and i was like yeah you definitely would you you definitely would love that guy okay terry are you ready with the mic always ready who would like the first question of the evening would you like it sir as you were so keen early on down the front here terry just to your left What's your name, my good man, and what uh, is your question? Um, uh, my name is Michael. You sure? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you had to think about that for a minute. <laughs> and
2: and 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 honestly, Michael, you don't have to stand up.
0: <laughs> I know.
2: If you're comfortable, yeah, okay. Uh,
0: just uh, one question: uh, Will be another Union or Eric the Project album? Uh, say again. Union. Union. Yes. Or Eric the Project. <laughs> ESP. Will, yes, there be a, will there be a new album from either of oh, those? Oh, I you know what? Honestly, um here's the
2: thing with uh Union, uh, which would kind of explain the title of my book. Uh for those of you who don't know what horseshoes and hand grenades
0: means. Available upstairs, just so you know. Uh
2: <clears throat> it's it's uh kind of an American phrase when you say uh, uh, if you're doing something and maybe you get really close to completing it or you get really close to finalizing what it is that you wanted to do, but you just fall short a little bit. Maybe it doesn't work out. You go, God, I was so close. I was this close. And the american phrase is close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades thank you dad um the thing with union uh was Amer- especially in america there's a i don't know maybe it's the it, same over here with radio and MTV and a lot of these journalists they would hear the band and they would go oh this is really cool but then they would find out who the who was in the band and they would say uh, Bruce Kulick from Kiss and John from Motley Crue and immediately everybody would go oh really you know what i mean like uh, I remember a record label guy saying, uh, when he found out, he heard our demos and loved the band. And then, as soon as he found out it was Bruce and I, he was like, "I'll never sign a band where the members are older than I am." And I, I was a little insulted by that. Obviously, I'm not trying to be a wrestler or a footballer or boxer it's art you know what i mean the thing with union was we came out at a time when uh you know at that point in in in, even motley was one of the things we suffered was we came out at a time when alice and chains and soundgarden and nirvana and all these bands were ruling and then once I left the band, Bruce and I put union together and we were still kind of in that, that cycle. The other thing that was weird about union was that a lot of the newer bands, I remember Pantera used to come and see us all the time. And, uh, do you still have the tattoo? Yes, I do. I I'll checking. never get rid of that. Um, Pantera would come and see us, and bands like Seven Dust and all this stuff,
1: and they're like, oh, fuck,
2: you know, I love the band, you know, huge fan of Bruce's from throughout his career in KISS, and huge fan of yours with the Motley stuff that you did and the Scream, and and the problem was, uh, so some of these newer bands that were coming up, like Pantera, Seven Dust, they'd go, oh, maybe... Maybe we could do some shows together. You guys could open for us. Okay. But the promoters and the managers would go, no, they're they're 80s guys. Why do you want to be involved with them? Why would you do that? No. And then we got offered to do tours with Poison and Cinderella and different bands like that from the eighties and the promoters and managers ago, why do you want to take them on the road? They're new. They're a new band. So we kind of, we didn't fit into any category. So we really just kind of tried to do our own thing. Uh, we weren't getting any press or any, any radio, uh, most of the places that actually embraced the band was here and Scandinavia and parts of Europe, but we weren't selling any records. So Union didn't, we never really split up. It wasn't like we were fighting with each other or any weird thing like that. We just, Bruce got offered the gig playing guitar for Grand Funk Railroad. I got offered the gig to play guitar for Rat. And oddly enough, Jamie and Brent got offered to play be the rhythm section for Vince Neal, which was, it was better money. And we were playing bigger places. So we never split up. Now the problem is we still love each other to death. I just saw all the guys not that long ago. Now the problem is timing. When can we, because we've talked about maybe doing some shows together as union or maybe writing a couple of new songs. But the problem is, is okay. Bruce is, he's doing this with grand funk railroad and his solo record. And I'm doing my solo record and I'm touring and Brent's playing with slash and Jamie hunting has been playing with Roger Daltrey forever. Uh, so it's trying to find time when we could get together and literally spend a few weeks rehearsing and then you know obviously it takes months to book a, even 10 shows or whatever you got to get on the kiss cruise give Gina a call Bruce was on it <clears throat> but again even doing that we would have to get together cuz I'm we I mean I'm talking about we haven't played together for it's 20, 22 years you know what I mean? So we would literally have to, we would literally be teaching ourselves the songs again. And like, uh, you know what I mean? We'd love to do it. Uh, we've talked about it. Um, you know, and then I did see on the last kiss cruise that I did with the daisies, um, I talked to Eric and I said, you know what, like the ESP thing, if you remember was just, all cover songs that we grew up listening to. So I said to Eric, I said, look, I have a studio now, and Chuck's got a studio. Let's think now about what songs we want to do, and we'll just start recording stuff so when you're done with KISS, we can, we can have a record done, put it out, and then come back and do... Honestly, ESP, we do, we don't even play America. We've never played America, not one show. We always play England and all through Europe and Scandinavia. We've never done one show in America because people don't—they don't get it. Here, the fans are like, "Oh, Eric Singer, Bruce Kulick, John Karabi, Chuck Garrick, yes, let's go." But in America, it's you know whatever. We have better taste, is what that is. That's that's basically <laughs> you people have really <laughs> shitty taste.
0: <laughs> okay, next question. Where are we gonna go? Hey, very kind of you, very kind.
4: Bruce Bruce, sorry, uh, so um John mine's a humorous question, I guess. I just wanted to know,
1: um have you got any opinions at all on John Five's latest like, appointment? I do. Uh <clears throat> I, I will just say this.
2: Uh, I, I, I know John as well. Uh, he's a brilliant, and I cannot say brilliant loud enough. He's a brilliant guitar player and a great dude. Um, <clears throat> but the verdict for me is out Until I hear a statement from Mick. Um, The statement that we heard was put together by Motley and their people. And not totally sure I believe what they're saying. So I'll just leave it at that.
0: There's some very nice moments in the book where you talk about your times with Mick living at his house and just what like a gentleman and a... <clears throat> he is truly like and and it's funny because i i
2: kind of tell a story when i do my shows uh hopefully if uh anybody doesn't know it i am what's the name of the at the boston room yes
0: boston music room
2: boston music room on friday friday
0: night um so
2: a lot of these stories uh i'll be i'll be telling some of these stories while i play the music um <clears throat> but Mick is truly. Uh, when I met him, he was very intimidating. Because uh, when I met him, he was just standing off to the you know side, and he had sunglasses on and a beret and a long sleeve shirt, leather pants, black boots, and everything was black. And there was a cloud over him, and it was raining in the room, and lightning and wind and cr- crows and uh and Nikki said Nikki said hey John uh this is Mick and he said Mick say hello to John and he literally sat there with his sunglasses well let me do I'll show you uh, you bring him up did i bring him no oh shit uh, anyway again? no 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 <laughs> so he he literally he's standing there with his guitar and Nikki said John uh Mick this is John And he's just
1: standing there, and he goes like this, no, nothing.
4: Like the head nod.
1: And so I was like, oh. uh."
2: But then we went to that uh, wedding, the Catalina thing, and I really kind of talked with them more. And the more that I played with them, the more Mick was excited that he had another guitar player that he could lean on a little bit, and it freed him up. So then I was going through a divorce, and uh, I was going to get an apartment, and uh, Mick called me. And uh, he, he never called me crabby. This is, I, my phone would ring, and I'd see it'd be Mick. And he would say, uh, I'd go, hello. And this is this is how he always talked to me. He'd go,
3: what are you doing, you bastard?
2: And I'm like, oh, hey, Mick. Uh, you know, he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, listen, I heard you're going to get a fucking apartment. And I go, well, yeah, I'm kind of separated with Val. and Yeah, fuck that. I got a guest house. Just come and stay with me. Why are you getting an apartment? We're going to go on tour in two months. You're gonna pay for a place and not be there. I said, "All right." So I, I went and I stayed at his house. He had this—I mean, the guest house was the size of a normal fucking person's house, right? So I stayed there. He put a phone line in uh, that connected his house up on the hill under the black cloud and the crows and the skeletons. Uh, so my phone would blink in my kitchen, like the bat phone. <laughs> yeah, like the bat phone and I go hello he go what are you doing you bastard nothing I'm watching TV get your ass up here so I'd go up to his house and he would have a giant giant TV screen and he was either playing video games or watching he had every episode every one from the beginning to the last episode that the three stooges ever did and he had a little table, and he had cigarettes, a bowl of chocolate, and a bottle of whiskey. And I go up and sit on his couch. He's like, hey, I want to pay the toll. And I go, pay the toll? Yeah, just fucking do a shot with me. And he'd pour a drink, and boom, and take a sip. And then he would go like this, and the hair on his arm would stand up. All right, cool. And we would play guitar. And the one night I was there, uh, he had all these guitars laying around. And I just, so I'm sitting there. And he's, he's over here. And so there was a guitar. So I grabbed the guitar, and I'm talking to him. And as I'm talking to him, I'm just kind of noodling around on this guitar. And he goes, what is that? I go, what? He goes, that riff you're playing. I don't know. I'm talking to you like I wasn't, I'm just playing a riff. It's a great riff. Let's, uh, let's record that. So he put it on a DAP machine. Then he took the guitar from me and he put it in a case by the door. And he goes, That one's yours. And I go, Nah, dude. No, no, no. Uh, he goes, When you buy a guitar, if it speaks to you, It belongs to you. I've been playing that guitar for three days, and I haven't thought of anything. You played it for five minutes, came up with a riff. It's yours. It's meant to be with you. So he takes the guitar up front. Boom. And I sit back down again. And again, it it was a giant L-shaped leather couch. So he's there. and I grab a Stratocaster. And I'm sitting talking to him again. And I come up with another riff. And he does the same thing again. He's like, record that riff. Boom. Okay, great. Put it on there. He takes a guitar from me, and he walks up to the door, puts it in a case. Now I have two guitars sitting at the door. So I have a Telecaster and a Stratocaster. Next day, I'm going to the studio. And I had to do some guitar parts for a song. I don't know if anybody's familiar with uh it was on uh the Quaternary record. We did a song called uh No it was Living in the No. And there was a little bit of a funky guitar part in there. So I have to do this part and and uh, so I go, oh. I got these two guitars that Mick just gave me, this Fender Telecaster and Stratocaster. That'll be perfect for this funky part. I take them into the studio, and Bobby O, our guitar tech, he sees the guitars, he restrings them, and he puts them in the studio next to my amps. And then Bob Rocks is, okay, let's get in there and do that guitar part. I put the headphones on, and I grab the Telecaster, and I set up on my lap, and... Bob immediately hits the button. He goes, "Crap, where'd you get that Telecaster? So I go into the microphone. I go, oh, I was at Mix last night, and he gave me the guitar. He's like, really? I go, yeah, he gave me this Telecaster or this Stratocaster as well. Bob goes, bring him in here. So I take the headphones off. I grab the guitars. I go into the control room. And Bob is a guitar collector. So he reaches into his briefcase. He's got a Gibson kind of book, and then he pulls out a Fender book, and he's looking at the
1: serial number on the Telecaster. And he goes, Crap, do
2: you realize that this is a real 1951, Telecaster, and it's worth $12,000. And I was like, what? You know what I mean? I'm freaking out. I go, what? Uh, No, I didn't realize that. So he goes, let me see the Stratocaster. He pulls the Stratocaster out, looking at the serial numbers, and he goes, this is a 1954 non-Tremolo Strat. It's worth about $22,000. So I was at mix invited Come here, you bastard. I got free drinks. I sat and watched the three stooges with him all night, had a great conversation and walked out with $40,000 worth of guitars. So I gave him back. I said, dude, I can't take him. He was so fucking mad at me. He's like, dude, I gave you those guitars. He's the nicest guy. Doesn't give a shit about anything in his mind. Those guitars spoke to me. They're yours. They belong with you. Didn't matter that he just bought those two guitars like two days before. He played them. Didn't think of anything. I played them. I came up with a riff. They were mine. And he gave them to me. I eventually gave them back to him. But I'm just saying, like, he he just is the nicest guy on the fucking planet. And he's genuine and when i even when i was living there i got mad at them because it was christmas and i was like ah oh, you know i was shopping to get some shit for my kids and uh you know i'm i'm like you know I, as a parent like i wanted to spoil my kids a little bit but not be overly Whatever about it. I wanted my kids to understand the value of a dollar. So I got him, I got him some stuff. And uh Mick called. He goes, What are you doing, you bastard? I'm, like, oh, I'm just hanging out with the kids. He goes, Bring Ian over to the house. I got some stuff for him. I take my kid over and Mick's got like $9,000 worth of shit for my two kids. And I'm like, bro, fuck, you're making me look like a chintz here. Like, seriously, like I only spent like 500 bucks on my kids, bro. Like, you know, he's like, he's got like, my kid's got a big screen TV and he's got the fucking all the three stooges things. And he's got like the Sega Mega fucking Game Boy bullshit thing. And, I'm, you know, this one really fires live bullets. And I'm like, fuck, dude. You know, so we kinda I, but he's he's a sweetheart. He's the nicest guy on the fucking planet. And unfortunately, I'm gonna elaborate a little, I probably shouldn't, but I don't totally believe that Mick uh reasons for leaving Motley and I don't even know if he left Motley. Uh I believe maybe he was shown the door. Because as long as I can remember Fuck, when we were doing the Generation Swine record, uh, they were complaining about his guitar playing then. And if you really look at all of the records they've done since then, uh, majority of the guitars on the Swine record, which is one of the reasons why I sued the guys, are mine. They were complaining about Mick the whole fucking time. And then I don't know if he played on New Tattoo, I'm not sure, but I know on Red White and Crew it was DJ Ashba, on Saints of Los Angeles it was DJ Ashba, and on the Dirt it was John Five. So
0: those old Nikki's buds.
2: I I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I could be totally wrong about this, so don't run around and fucking you know whatever put it in print yet. But I'm just saying I'm waiting for mix re, mix response the one that we've all heard came from Motley and their management so you know what i mean i don't know and this is the other thing that's kind of bugging me because since that announcement came out i've reached out to Mick and his wife by uh a few times and Mick hasn't responded at all. And I sent Phi when I was in, if you know Phi, his wife, she's from Switzerland. So when I was there last week, I sent some photos of the Alps. I was in the Alps and I wrote to her and I said, hey, I'm in your motherland. And she wrote back. But then I said, then I came back and I was like, hey, man, how's Mick? And she goes, he's fine. Hey, like, what's going on? crickets so that's kind of unusual behavior for mick and Phi. they would normally just like you know yeah dude everything's cool you know whatever so i was telling nicholas uh i don't know if he's embarrassed or he's uh maybe who knows maybe he's angry and maybe he's being told not to say anything to anybody. Maybe there's going to be a lawsuit. I don't know. But I just know how those guys operate. And I would not be surprised if they didn't say, Mick, look, you're in pain. Da, da, da. We got John five. We're going to bring him in and, you know, maybe throw him a, a bone. Like every time they tore, throw him, Whatever, some money, but we're gonna we're gonna move forward with this guy. So it wouldn't surprise me that now this is all a theory. Uh, I I don't I know about as much as you guys do, but I'm personally I don't believe a word of that statement at all.
0: So before we go to another crowd question, one thing I wanted to bring up that I enjoyed seeing was your vocalization uh of the distasteful approach to the um relationship between Tommy and Pamela Anderson in the T V show that was recently made. And I really respected the fact that you stood up and said that the way their personal lives were, you know, disrespected in that way, especially to Pamela and the kids. I well, thought that was a solid move on your part as a loyal friend to I, Tommy. I, I, I didn't I didn't mean
2: anything. Well okay. So as everybody else, I think I watched maybe the
0: first episode or two. You didn't see Tommy's dick talk then. You didn't get that far in. Uh, but yeah. They they and, animated his penis. Yeah, literally. and I'm like,
2: <laughs> so I'm just sitting there and I was looking at it and uh, but the whole thing, like, I w- I w- I was looking at it and. I immediately saw the dick thing and then I was looking at the part where uh, he's got the house and then he goes and he meets Pam and, you know, there's all this fighting and I was just sitting there and, you know, I was talking with some friends and I go, this is total bullshit. Like I was there and, you know. Again, please tell me to shut up if I'm a little long with my long in the tooth of my answers. But when Tommy met Pam, he was living in an apartment in Malibu. Um, and I lived in this area right near Tommy and Nikki. And I had some friends that had a, a, a buddy that was a contractor. And I don't know. I don't. I don't know how I met the guy, but I met him through these mutual friends that lived down the street. And the guy found out that I was in Motley Crue, and he goes, "Hey, man, I'll give you. I'll give you a deal of a lifetime on this house I'm working on." So I go, <clears throat> but you know, dude, I don't." Right now, it was, like, kind of towards the end of my time with the band. <clears throat> and uh, he goes, nah, man, let me just show you this house. So he took me over to this place, and uh, it was kind of Malibu Mountains. I go in, and I look at this home, and it's beautiful. And you pull in, there's a elevator, and there's, uh, this, like, it, but it was, like, built but not quite finished. Like they hadn't done any landscaping and there were still a few things that needed to be done or painted, whatever But the house was awesome. And I'm looking at it and the guy says, I will give you this house. Cause there was a, a little bit of a market crash in America for housing.
1: <clears throat>
2: and he goes, I will sell you, I will give you the deal of a lifetime on this house. If you can give me, right now, I will give you this house, and it sat on an acre, Uh, but he goes, "If if you can do that, he goes, I will give you the other lot next to it, which was like another acre and a half, two acres. Now, if you know anything about California, Malibu is like prime real estate. So I'm sitting here looking at this house on three acres of land, and I go, fuck, like God, I wish I had the money. I would fucking buy this right now. You know what I mean? Oh, wait, Tommy just got married. He's living in an apartment on Malibu Beach that he was spending $13,000 a month for. So I I called him. I go, hey, dude. This guy's got this house. I said, why don't you hop in your car and come up here and take a look at it? So he came up and he saw the house, did the whole thing. Then Pam came up and they looked at the house. And Tommy's like, dude, this is a this is an investor's like nirvana right now. I'm gonna buy this house. So he bought he bought the house. Guy sold it, boom, he pulled out. Now Obviously shit needed to be done. So uh, Tommy hired a crew to come in and kind of finish the house. And then they made, they were making some changes to like the bedroom area and different shit like that. So the way they made it look in the movie is like, Tommy came up with all these plans and he's walking around in his fucking speedo and he's never got any clothes on and you know, like all this shit. And then Tommy gets married and then he comes back and he starts changing everything because of thing. And I go, no, they were already married. I showed him a house that was kind of done and they sat down together with the contractor and said, here's what we want. The reason why they got rid of the contractor was because he said, I'll have this house done in like two months. Okay, great. Well, we were in the garage with Tommy's recording gear, working and writing on uh, Generation Swine for like six months. And in between takes, it was like, like all this shit. So Tommy finally lost his shit. And he goes, guys, seriously, told me two fucking months. You know what I mean? You know what? Get your shit. Get the fuck out. Can't blame him. You know, but they made Tommy look like a fucking asshole in that movie in the beginning, like this drug, blah, blah, blah. And now the other thing is the guy's like, oh, we never got paid. I can tell you right now, still to this day, Tommy, Nicky, Mick, Vince don't handle the money. They go, I want that car. Somebody else calls the guy, their accountant works out the deal. Tommy and Nikki have no fucking idea half the time what they pay for shit because somebody else worked the deal out for them. So as far as, like, being paid or not being paid, those guys don't handle the money at all. Uh, you know, so I was just sitting there watching his TV show, and then I thought about it. Like, I remember how upset Pam was when all of that shit was happening, when the tape got stolen. And, 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 and I was just sitting there going, fuck, like now she's got to relive it again. And not just that, Tommy's now married to Brittany. And I'm like, how shitty is that? That she's got to look. And now she's got to see like this fucking video or movie about her husband Fucking his ex wife on a boat in lake and driving the boat with his dick and, and I'm just sitting there going, man, like this is not good for anybody. I just thought it was bullshit. And then the two boys, you know, I'm going, why? What, what? Whoever decided to do this movie has zero taste or is not a really good human being. Why would you do that? Do you know what I mean? I, so hey, hey. hey. I just thought it was shit, you know? You're you're putting people through a bunch of unwanted anguish. And I know Tommy had nothing to do with it. Uh, because I sent him a message. I'm like, bro, like, the fuck is going on with this? And he's like, he just wrote, don't ask, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And I, I was like, oh, I, I, I can't do this. And I, you know, I don't know half the time when I write shit or I say things, how much fucking weight it carries or it doesn't or if anybody gives a shit at all. And I was just like, I talked with a few friends and I was like angry. So I was like, you know what, you know, and I just fucking spewed a bunch of shit. I was actually more sticking up for Pam and Brittany, you know what I mean, than Tommy. Tommy's fine. He's like, whatever, dude. Check out my dick. You know, whatever. You know, Tommy. And he, nothing It phases him, but it doesn't. I was more concerned with Brittany and Pam and the boys. I'm like, this is kind of lame. Bullshit.
0: Whatever. I thought it was an honorable move, so cheers. 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 cheers, Thank you. All right. (sighs) Let's do another question from the floor. Let's do a couple more, and then we'll... End on the song. Front row, Terry?
2: Was that the redhead?
0: <laughs>
1: Would you want to ask your question? The terrorist? <laughs> <laughs> Go okay. on, mate.
0: You've obviously lived like a very crazy colourful...
2: Not as colourful as your hair, but whatever. All
0: mine, probably. You
3: know <laughs> but, um, no, like, you've lived a life that only,
0: like, dream of, yeah. So when you reflect on your
2: What's one moment
1: sort of like, starts, I
0: like don't mean like I mean in like an artistic sense, you know like what's one moment, a visceral moment, you know, one that back that to
2: really starts, you
1: know? um I would have to say, um. I've got you there. No, no, no. It,
2: I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think to make sure. But I would honestly have to say, probably the moment that was like the standout moment in my entire career would be getting the phone call that the scream, the first band that I ever recorded anything with that anybody gave a shit about uh, that we actually got a record deal because I kind of look at it like, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the scream, uh, Nikki hearing that record and saying, Oh, I really like this band. I'd like that guy to come down and jam with us. I would have, would have never led to Motley Crue. Mötley Crüe would have never led to Union, Union would have never led to Rat and all the other shit that I did. So the really the the, the defining moment for my career would be getting the phone call like, "Hey, you guys got a record deal." And uh somebody believing in it and uh it's the band that uh and i don't want to say this to sound callous or 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 rude but i think we're all adults here i think you can go through life uh you may have 50 lovers in your life but you're always going to remember in detail the first one good bad or indifferent that one is that's the first so I would say The Scream is probably the defining moment. And then there was The Twins
0: in Iowa, but I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have the final question of the night, my friend. Bring it down the front here. Let's Cheers. bring it home. Thank you. Um, obviously, you've had quite the journey in your career of writing with so many different um, musicians and obviously with solo career and stuff. If the opportunity ever arose would you write a rock musical for broadway or the west end or theater I don't know if I'm
2: smart enough for that <laughs> Um thank you Um have you ever heard of the casting couch anyway Okay um no 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 I, I you know what there's I I really um I there's it's it's hard for me to explain So I have, uh, you know, Fred Corey from Cinderella. Um, Fred's got an amazing job now doing music for TV shows. And there's such an art to it. Like, it doesn't even have to be like a whole song. It just needs to be like 20 seconds of this thing that sets a mood for uh, that piece that they're looking at. And I don't know. I'm not saying I couldn't do it, but I just, uh, I don't, sometimes I kind of doubt myself like, like we all do. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm that fucking smart to like do that. I'm such a sporadic writer to begin with. You know, I may go three months without writing anything. And then it's like, I'll pick up a guitar and I'll write like nine songs and then nothing. And I've always been that guy. But that's like, oh, okay, let's write a rock opera. And I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, Okay. That's just a whole other level of genius to me. You know what I mean? Freddie Mercury could do it all day long. But I don't know if I'm that intelligent to be able to. You got to take a story and then write music that enhances each part of that story and i'm like wow seems a lot of work right there i'm just gonna sit here with my cocktail and just call it a day maybe masturbate on you know three o'clock in the end, whatever. whatever whatever i'm <laughs> i'm that guy but I, that's it's a good question but i don't know if i could do it i'm not sure i mean i guess i would have to try but the whole idea is like uh, i don't know and, but I and I love Fred, and he's so musical. I've seen some of the shit that he's done, and I'm like, how do you do that? And he told me, he's like, financially, it's the most rewarding thing he's ever done. But he goes, I literally sit behind a TV screen with those, you know, those, uh, the numbers, uh, the codes, the time codes. I literally sit there with time codes and I have to like go from that millisecond to that millisecond and I got to come up with something that enhances that 300 frames of film. And I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. He's like, I'm, he goes, I literally sit at the screen 16 to 17 hours a day a day six days a week to do one episode of a TV show
0: I go yeah I'll be at the bar I'm like no so what we're saying is horseshoes and hand grenades the musical coming soon <laughs> With- to a Broadway near you in perhaps 2052 <laughs> I know Karabi, somebody and somebody just
2: asked me when my solo record was going to come out. And I go, 20. Was that you? Or no, it was you today. Yeah. So when, when can we expect a solo record? I go, well, I'm kind of doing it on my own with Pro Tools. Uh, I'm thinking May, June of 2031.
0: Well, the first two tunes that are out there are amazing. So thank you, brother. It's going to be worth the wait, guys. Should we do a song to end the night, John? You up for it?
2: Uh, sure. Yes.
0: Yeah. We'll try it. We'll give it a go, ladies and
2: gents. All right. Let me uh, let me see what's happening here.
1: Uh,
2: uh, uh, oh, here's the mic stand.
0: One more time. Please make some noise for John for coming out tonight, sharing woo! some tales. Yeah, woo! Thank you, guys. Download the podcast. Yeah, Life and the Stocks. It's available everywhere. Check it out. Cheers. Thanks. I've been woo! Matt Stocks. Good yes,
2: night. And uh, as a little little disclaimer for those of you who bought the book and haven't looked in it yet, it is a coloring book. Hey. Okay. <laughs> Bump.
1: Beauty stomping up a storm, lines of hell on her face. Rose red apples crawling through the night, busting.